The reality is the body is very adaptable. My first approach with any rider or any injury full stop, we're trying to harness the body's innate capacity to adjust, adapt, repair and heal. We have got a special guest today. I'm uh, looking forward to this. So this guy, by what he's going to talk to us about, is probably going to help us all ride faster, ride more comfortably, less problems, less injuries, less stress on the body, uh, maybe even help the bike handling as well. That's what this guy's expertise is. And if I was to say to you, Ross, like say you thought of a specific skill that you wanted to get better at right now, and it doesn't even have to be in riding. Just something really definitive and specific where you know, you know what, when I can do that, I'll know that I've done pretty well. Can you think of something that jumps into your mind? Look, possibly something to do with, Scotty, um, the way I sit on the bike, the positioning of my shoulders and my arms in general. That would be one thing that I would pick out, I would think. Mm. So if you sort of had a slightly different feeling with that, that felt even better, that's what it would be like you'd be after? I think so. Yeah. yeah. So imagine, right, you had a plan of attack of how to do that. And then you went and practiced that sitting on the bike, you know, you're changing things and then went out and you imagine you did that 2,500 times, 2,500 times of practicing sitting on the bike better than ever before. Right. You reckon you get pretty good then? You're saying that I can feel better on a bike because there are times well, there where I've, I feel okay, but that good feeling can start to wane towards yeah. the end of a ride. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm saying you can feel better on the bike, but I'm also saying that this guy who's talked to us has done around 2,500 bike fits in his career. So I just straight away think if someone does that many and they're conscientious and they're passionate and they make a living off making sure that people are looked after, then I would have thought that that's a pretty good bike fitter to listen to. Absolutely. Who is this guy that you're talking about? (laughs) The big build-up. So this guy is Lucas Owen. And he is also a qualified bike fitter, but also a qualified physiotherapist. And he works out of his own business uh, cycling physiotherapy center here in Melbourne, in Bulleen. And I've had a bit to do with him over the years and always, 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 always enjoy my time speaking with Lucas. So he's been a physiotherapist for 20 years. He's had his own cycling physiotherapy center for 14 years and been doing bike fits. Like I said, 2,500 bike fits over 14 years too. So we're really lucky to have him. So, Lucas, welcome, mate. Thank you very much for coming. That's a pleasure. Thanks for having me, Scott and Ross. Yeah, good on you, mate. It's really good. So you were saying just today that you've done a few bike fits today. Uh, before we even get into all what a bike fit is and all that, just give us the two different types of clients that you work with today. Yeah, so it's uh, pretty similar to what I see through the clinic on a regular basis. So I see people at uh, all ends of experience and interest in bike fitting so today i had two clients through for bike fits one who very much a beginner um so she was obviously looking for input for some of the basics on you know training principles and what sort of technique she should use while she's riding as well as the actual biomechanical uh assistance and Mm. the other was quite an experienced rider who's 
looking forward to the arrival of a new race road bike um, and came in with an existing bike to try and optimise that whilst he waits for his new bike. So, uh, yeah, it's again, that's the sort of uh, spectrum of people that I've worked with over time, right through from, again, absolute beginners through to guys and girls racing at a pretty elite level. And mm. at the same time, what I find sort of rewarding and interesting with that is their needs are essentially the same. So they all really come back to the same foundational principles and the same sort of uh, outcomes we're looking for regardless of whether they're beginners or experts. Mm. Yeah, well, we're going to ask you about those. So for the listeners out there, I am a bike fit believer. I get right into it. I've got a deep appreciation for everything that goes with it. It's part of my background. It's part of my professional craft and trade previously, but also I experience the benefits on the bike as well. Now, Ross, uh, he's told me that he's almost like a bike fit virgin here. He's open to it and, and hopeful and waiting, but hasn't had much experience at all. So I thought I might just hand over to you, Ross, and you can ask some of the questions that are sort of top of mind for you. Yeah, and by no means am I against bike fitting, but uh, absolutely no. uh, through one reason or another, mostly laziness that I just haven't ever um, <laughs> had one. Um, I will one day, um, and I'm quite looking forward to it. But Lucas, if there's someone in my position who was looking to get a bike fit, um, had a bike, and, and they'd been established on that bike for however many years, and I walk in your clinic uh, or you, your workplace, what what do you do? You know, what's the process that we go through? Sure. So like I was just touching on before, essentially the process and the outcomes are the same regardless of the the rider's experience level or what they're aiming for. So whether you're looking for improved comfort, whether you're looking for performance gains, whether you're looking for assistance in confirmation that the bike and the equipment you're on is the right size or assisting you with choosing a new bike, you know, all of those parameters are quite universal so the process that I run through with people I suppose the way I describe it and conceive of it originates from my training and experience as a physiotherapist so the first part that I'm looking at is the actual rider so I start off with a a thorough assessment and history of what their athletic um, history is any injuries any surgeries or major physical history and then a thorough physical assessment off the bike. So to me, that's uh, becoming familiar with that person's physical foundation and starting from that to anticipate how that may influence how they will operate on a bike. So there will be some elements that are possibly helpful, whilst others might be uh, physical restraints or problems that we have to anticipate or compensate for. So The first part is very much uh, focusing on the rider themselves and their existing physical function. The next stage is to look at them on their bike in the existing setup. So we just at the clinic, I've got an indoor trainer, which we get them on there. And importantly, because there are uh, different fitting setups, in my case, it's very much working with the rider on their bike. So I don't use a fit rig or anything of that nature. And so the assessment there is getting the rider warmed up on the trainer on their bike and starting to observe again what are their natural movement patterns on the bike what does their posture look like um, how easily they sort of shift on the bike or move their posture around and starting to then match up again the assessment off the bike 
relative to how they function on the bike. Because again, there are always exceptions. I've had people where there's no measurable asymmetry off the bike, for instance, and you get them on and they are sitting off one side of the saddle or their upper body's rotated. And then equally, I've had people where you can assess them off the bike and they've got really obvious physical differences between one side or the other. They've had different surgeries and yet they get on the bike and they're silky smooth and they're really symmetrical. Um, So again, it's really looking to correlate their underlying function then with their riding function. And based on those, um, it's then looking at what changes to the bike setup will give them the best improvements in comfort and performance. Can I just backtrack just a little bit? So in that initial consultation or the start of the consultation, have you ever struck any instances where obviously the the end result is what it's like on the bike, but have you had an examination sort of that, hey, hey, the bike is the least of your problems. (laughs) We need to fix this with you. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, it depends on, it's always an ongoing conversation with the client. So there's definitely, you know, my services for a bike fit is a two-hour consultation. Um, but yeah, over those two and a half odd thousand bike fits, there've definitely been times where I've short-circuited the fit and said, of course, we both anticipated today that we were going to be able to run through and complete a fit session, but I'm observing physical characteristics that I believe are just not going to allow us to achieve that outcome today. So mm-hmm. yes, I have seen those. Sometimes you need to be Again, in my case, prioritising either the physiotherapy treatment input or in some cases saying, I think you need further investigations, whether that be, um, you know, x-rays, MRI scans, other things. So, yes, sometimes in the physical assessment there are significant enough issues that I just say, look, we could pretend that we're going to get a good outcome, but I'm not going to waste your time or your money by trying to persist. So, yeah, it does happen. Have you ever had to tell any clients, Lucas, that maybe they'd be better off taking up chess? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Not specifically chess. Um, No, no. So, What's your your go-to alternative suggestion? (laughs) Uh, I I haven't actually thought of that. I don't have a funny answer. But um, uh, I I have definitely come across a few people over my time where I've been... (laughs) I suppose I try to take the perspective of being impressed. So one that always stands out was a gentleman who, this was when Melbourne had the Ironman a couple of times back a while ago now, and he came in and I think it was March was when the Ironman was scheduled, and this gentleman came in in about the October, so, you know, five, six months out, and... He made a little note with his booking when he'd made that. So I was anticipating someone coming in who probably six months out from an Ironman was probably going to be in pretty good order. <laughs> and um, and this gentleman, and again, as I say, I had to give him full credit. Yeah, yeah. Um, he, I can't remember exactly, but he would have been at least 120 kilo. Oh. Mm. When I spoke to him his the bike that he arrived with as well he said oh yeah this is my brother-in-law's bike he's just loaned it to me so he hadn't ridden a kilometer he hadn't been in the pool and he'd started doing a couple of k jogging on the treadmill and uh so, again, so he's, that's, he was pretty much on track then by the sands he was well and truly on track yeah <laughs> he so, was ready lucas he was ready <laughs> he was ready ready and he had energy stored up 
Yeah, and probably would have been one of Scott's favourites because the guy's positivity and optimism, <laughs> I had to give him full credit for. Um, so, yeah, look, there are some people who come through the door where you do wonder how you're going to gently assist them to shift what their uh, expectations yeah, yeah, might yeah. be for their own goals. Yeah, um, yeah. But at the same time, again, people are coming in for very different reasons and motivations and that's what really I find keeps it interesting for me so um, you know some people are after again very much performance gains and outcomes and others it's because it's their recreation their social outlet their mental health you know cycling to all of us as you guys would well know means different things and Mm. Yeah. That's the variety of clients I really enjoy working with. We're all in it for different reasons and it's lovely to help people with it. Did you find out how he went, that guy in the Ironman? No, I didn't actually. So, yeah. uh, no, no, I don't know. Yeah. He probably meddled in it, I would imagine. So. <laughs> he probably did. He goes, what's the he big deal? Did. I'll drop the weight. No problem. You could, you could have been yeah. forgiven for saying, look, mate, I'm a, I'm a physio and a bike fit. I'm not a fucking miracle worker. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> So, no, I definitely see a a broad range and, yes, there are some times where I I suppose, you know, again, as a generalised response to that question, yes, there can sometimes be honest conversations with people about reframing what their expectations are. Mm -hmm. Um, And and it can sometimes go the other way too, which not just with my bike clients, I do, uh, you know, physiotherapy with the general population too and, Sometimes it's the opposite that you get people coming in who have been told by other professionals, whether medical or, you know, within the cycling fraternity as well, that, oh, you'll never be able to, yeah. you know, do 100K again or you'll never, you know. And sometimes the reframing can be really positive of saying, well, look, you know, when I go through my physical assessment and then observe you on the bike, I can't see any reason why that has to be the conclusion. So, yeah, yeah you just cool. take take people as they come. So you were stepping through that consultation and, you know, let's just say that I've come in and everything's okay and, and then we get into the bike fit part of it. What do you start with, essentially, when that bike fit begins? Yeah, sure. So the sequence of the adjustments is really crucial. So uh, once again, we've got that foundation of assessing the physical function of the rider, the adjustments to the bike. uh, It's really important that that sequence commences with foot placement. So for most people coming to me, that's their riding with clipless pedals. So that's making the assessment and adjustment of their their cleat position. So that's always the first. And I just described that, you know, once we're clipped into the pedal, we can't modify that point of contact with the bike as we're riding. So that is always the first foundation. Um, From there, then we're moving through to saddle position. So once we're happy with that foot placement, we can confidently expect that their movement pattern and their uh, pedaling motion is going to be correct around the foot and ankle. And so we can move up that movement chain towards what the seat position is. And essentially, you've got those three elements with seat position. So that's height the fore-aft position and the saddle tilt are the the, uh, adjustment ranges that we can work with. And then together, the foot placement and the seat position provides the foundation for the rider to reach towards the handlebars. So the way I sort of summarise that is the foot and seat position gives your pelvis a certain foundation from which we can lean towards the handlebars. And your core stability will then allow you to lean to a certain angle 
and whatever the residual distance to the bars is, is what you'll adjust your arm position. So how straight or bent your elbows are and how much you have to curve your spine towards the bars. So that's the sequence, basically feet, seat bars. And sometimes there is, of course, an interdependence between the seat and the bars. So if you have to make then significant changes to the front end of the bike, sometimes you do have to then go back and readjust or fine tune the seat position. But that, that's the general sequence. Mm-hmm. I'm intrigued by the cleat position because it's something that no doubt you've probably seen a few um, of your clients over the time that just slight adjustments here or there. Is it more cleat adjustment or do you think it, it would err on the, the seat adjustment or, or do they sort of complement each other a little bit? I mean, certainly I'll always assess all of them. Yep. And even for people like the first client that I had in today, who again was a, you know looking for a recreational riding outcome, she was riding with flat pedals. So even in her case, we didn't have cleats to actually adjust on the shoes. She was just in casual shoes on flat pedals. But what we're trying to achieve with the cleat placement or advice about their foot placement on a flat pedal is to have the force transfer through the parts of the foot that are designed for that force transmission and absorption. So as far as minimising pressure points, as far as optimising the force transfer, what we essentially try to replicate is the normal point of contact we have when we're walking, running and jumping. So we essentially push through the ball of the foot The body anatomically has the extra padding in that part of the foot so that the joints and the nerves and the muscles have that cushioning and that will, again, optimise comfort and and efficiency. And that's what we're trying to, well, that's what I'm trying to replicate with the cleat placement. And so the measurements that I uh, use for that are based on the, the rider's foot anatomy. And so we're marking certain parts of the foot when the rider's got the shoes on and then we're using those as the reference points to uh, position the cleats correctly. And as well, that basic principle applies regardless of pedal system. So whether you're running Shimano, look, speed play, yeah, yeah. whether it's a, a road style uh, pedals or mountain bike style, that basic principle is followed again because that's the, the part of the foot that anatomically is designed to tolerate that force you got me thinking as you're talking geez, I just always just chuck me cleats I think that looks pretty right I'll just screw them in there and we'll go for it <laughs> have, you got, have, have you got any spots I, I probably need can I come down this <laughs> afternoon and maybe <laughs> no well I suppose the other the other approach that I take which and I, I think I've chatted with Scott about this um, at other times as well is in the background as well my approach very much again, from the physiotherapy point of view as the first approach, is looking at the adaptability of the body. And mm. the, the reality is the body is very adaptable. Mm. So mm. my first approach with any rider or any injury full stop, we're trying to harness the body's innate capacity to adjust, adapt, repair, and heal. So when you're talking about your story is not uncommon that I've, I see many clients who've been riding for 5, 10, 20, 30 years who've never had any professional input in their bike fit or their cleat placement or any of those components and yet they've largely ridden comfortably and they've ridden long distances. And so part of what I also describe to people is, for the most part, if you're doing regular Ks at a reasonable intensity without any obvious physical symptoms, 
there will inherently be a lot about your bike fit that's correct or at least good enough. So there isn't, again, necessarily an absolute millimetre perfect position for any rider. And again, I sort of describe that to clients by saying in the case of a bike fit, we've got the bike on level ground, it's restrained in an indoor trainer, we're not working you necessarily in a really fatigued state. So what we're doing is we're inferring in a clinical setting what your riding position is as a foundation and we're then anticipating what your actual function out on the road will be like because again depending on the gradient depending on your preferred cadence depending on your fatigue level depending even on what sort of training session you're out there a tempo ride is going to demand different aspects from your body than a high intensity interval session so in many ways you know, most people, and, and even with cleat placement, as your original question was, there's not a huge amount of adjustment that's possible. You know, with yeah, a Shimano yeah. cleat, you can only move at the maximum of about 10 mil four aft anyway. Yep. So you can't get it generally horribly wrong. It will have consequences through the rest of your movement. Mm. Um, but as well, even with modern road shoes, which are very stiff in the sole design themselves, that also can help you by distributing the forces through and across the sole of the shoe so that you're less likely to have, you know, distinct pressure points or problems. But uh, again, all of it is about trying to get to that optimal, but there are plenty of people like yourself that are more than satisfactory, but enjoy still going through the process and having a confirmation that it's as good as possible. Yeah. And I guess what can happen down the track is, as we age, as our abilities change and, and everything starts to, like an injury could impact the way you sit on the bike, these things are, are pretty fluid, aren't they, in terms of what the requirements yeah. might be with your body? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, I think a lot of healthcare and even fitness in general, they're looking for the preventative element. So, you know, yes, you've obviously still been able to enjoy your cycling for a long time without any overt injuries. Um, but sometimes optimising those biomechanics can help sustain that for the longer term and clarify for you whether there are issues you could address. So on that then, Lucas, if I use Ross as an example, Ross is someone who rides anywhere from five to 10 hours a week regularly in terms of training and rides and bunch rides and that. And when I've only ridden with him a few times because we live uh, quite a way apart, but in the times I've ridden with him, from behind especially, he sits on the bike beautifully. I mean, looking at him right now, you'd you'd find that hard to believe. But when he's on the bike, this is not a word of a lie. It is beautiful. It's symmetrical. It looks smooth. It looks balanced. So in that case, Ross is not sure, but he doesn't really think he's had that problem. He mentioned to me sometimes when long rides, he gets a bit crampy, perhaps. Ross, anything else? Like what could Ross expect to perhaps to get out of a bike fit if there doesn't seem to be many glaring issues and he yep. looks pretty good on the bike. And I don't know, Ross, have you got anything to add to that assessment? You know what I mean? Because we're yeah, trying to yeah. say, what can could someone who's an experienced, skillful rider get out of it if they don't feel like there's anything really nagging? I would say if I was to come in and see Lucas, I'd say, look, I feel good on the bike. I feel like I pedal okay. But there are occasions where I'll feel like my shoulders will be hunched up and I get quite tight through that area of my body. So that that's probably something I'd pick out. Mm. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, I think most importantly, Scott and Ross, we can agree that looking good on the bike is the first priority. So, that is absolutely. It is. See, um, see, he's one of us, Ross. I told yep, you, yep. he's one of us. <laughs> it sounds like you've got it nailed. Sock height is the most important, of course. But, um, <laughs> but look, beyond beyond sock height, um, what you've just described, Ross, is one of the most common reasons why people come in for a fit. So generally when people are having issues with soreness or, or discomfort through the neck or shoulder or upper back region, there's generally an element of what I sort of class as a, a problem with your weight distribution on the bike. Yep. So one way that I often describe it is, again, and it's not unique to cycling, it's in any physical activity, uh, even for a sitting here on the call, uh, the body's first priority is for posture. So in a crude way, we can divide the muscles in the body into those that provide postural support and then other muscles which provide power or movement. So if we take cycling as obviously a specific example, when we're riding a bike, the body will activate or use whatever muscles it needs to to give that rider their postural support so that they can actually, you know, on the pedals, maintain their position, handling and uh, steering the bike. And that will be the first input. Beyond that, there's then residual sort of function that we can use to actually propel the bike. In a description like yours, if you're getting you know, tight and sore in the upper back and shoulders, to me that most commonly will be uh, the assessment will indicate you've got more pressure on the hands than necessary. And so it's a case of finding, again, that can sometimes be cleat placement that is shifting your body weight too far forward. Yep. It can also be seat position, seat tilt, uh, and sometimes as well as physical characteristics like poor flexibility or poor core stability. And in those cases, even if the biomechanics of the bike is, is confirmed, sometimes the rider needs to be doing some foundational strength work to give them the endurance and the, the postural capacity to tolerate that riding position. So that's what the session, of course, is trying to identify and help give you the advice about which element is going to give the best outcome. Ever since Scotty and I were discussing you coming onto the podcast, I've taken particular note of if I've been out on a ride with someone else, you know, how they sit on a bike and oh, what are they, what am I noticing here? And I do ride with a guy who gets numb hands. Um, he'll be forever shaking his hands out. I'm like, mate, it's not that cold this morning. What's going on? He goes, nah, my fucking hands have gone numb. So that's one thing that sort of I've struck on quite a few occasions. Very much the same. Again, it's likely to be a weight distribution issue likely to have too much weight on his hands and the nerves that uh, enter the hand near the wrist region, he's probably compressing on the handlebars yep. and you get numbness after long enough. So there are definitely, you know, a, a number of very common symptoms that people come in with. Yep. And yeah, of course, after a while, you get very familiar with anticipating probably what the problem is going to be. And they're often very simple um it's the curly ones you get where you the biomechanics are spot on and their physical function's good and again sometimes then you're looking at do they have some underlying pathology or issue that's not related to their bike riding but just shows up when they're on the bike yeah are you referring to like a lack of character <laughs> uh well that's a loaded question but uh no no more <laughs> More referring to, uh, you know, sometimes there are structural issues, you know, if we're talking about numbness in the hands, it could be carpal tunnel syndrome or there may be 
yeah. res- restrictions in their neck where they're getting nerve compression. Uh, so elements like that, which, again, the bike position might be uh, making that symptom more obvious to them, yeah, but sure. indicating yeah. that there's actually an underlying physical issue that needs further input even beyond the bike fit. So, Lucas, if, say, someone like a Ross was to come in and you made, again, this is where expectations of the customer come into it and you educating people to get them appropriate because you yep. might actually not make many changes at all when people might thinking, oh, I'm going to go and see a bike fit and they're going to make wholesale changes, going to change my universe. But perhaps with Ross, you just made some subtle changes and that neck tension and fatigue and shoulder tension fatigue backed away. What yep. would you then expect what would be the end um, outcomes would you typically expect to perhaps hear from uh, if that was the case, Lucas? Yeah, for sure. Look, again, if there's no underlying physical complaints or issues, then, mm. you know, my expectation rather is that the adaptability of the body can be harnessed to allow him to do as much riding as he likes without those symptoms. So, Mm. I suppose the conversation I have frequently with people is even as we make the adjustments to the bike, which, you know, for an issue like that, we would be anticipating that he would sense that there's less weight through the arms and the hands. There may still be an element of him then having to, in essence, retrain or adapt to those changes. So there's often stretches or strength exercises I recommend, but also just a sensible progression of their time on the bike. So many issues and Ross could maybe confirm this himself, you know, if he goes for an hour and a half bike ride, that may be, you know, short enough that he's not experiencing those symptoms. But if he's out for a four or five hour ride, then that may become more evident. So even in that element beyond making the adjustments to the bike, there can still be. Uh, I suppose there's a realistic expectation that you may still need time for the body to adjust and adapt. Um, There are still elements of the riding posture that are quite challenging for the neck, particularly a road bike where our body angle is quite low and we have to tilt the head back or the neck back to be able to see down the road. So that Mm. can still require a period of adaptation. And similarly to, you know, adjustments to the seat for some people, that's shifting the pressure to, you know, an area that they're not accustomed to that. Um, You know, the sit bones can sometimes feel a little uncomfortable or bruised in those initial few rides as they adjust to those adjustments. But I'm always looking to provide the foundation that they can then use to work forward. And and sometimes, again, I have this conversation with people as far as what they're happy to work with. But for some people, I describe what I call an aspirational bike fit. So there's some people who they have quite, you know, quite good underlying physical capacity. They've got a goal to train towards an event that might be quite uh, you know, important for them and quite high level. They've maybe also bought a bike that from its geometry is very race oriented and at the time they attend for the session in a way is too much for them. But if they've got that underlying function and motivation, again, I describe, well, okay, in a way we'll work towards an aspirational fit. You're not necessarily going to love it for three hours straight up. It'll be great for an hour, hour and a half. And if you're prepared to do some work off the bike and work on a really sensible progression of your time on the bike, four, six, eight weeks down the track, you're going to love it for as long as you need to be out on it. A bit like if Scotty yeah. came in and said, um, righto, Lucas, can you give me a wow? Give me a wow. Just fit me up like him. Give me yeah. the wow fit. Have you got that in your software, <laughs> the wow fit? 
<laughs> yeah, no, I don't have that actually. And and I do have that conversation frequently with people and it's yeah. it's actually a source of it's frequently a source of problems that bike fitters have to address is that um, and, and to an extent marketers sell us all this same idea but we see the images on the television screens and in the bike magazines and of course we admire these elite athletes and aspire to be somehow remotely like them but I always try and reassure people that look they have spent their full-time uh, you know hours for however many years learning to be a bike rider. They've put all the background work into adjusting their posture, working on their flexibility. They have regular hands-on therapy. They've had Ross. Ross, are you hearing this? I, I think Lucas, Lucas is starting to lose his mind at this point. I don't think he's making any more sense. <laughs> <laughs> are you concerned that I'm saying you can't be Van Art? Well, well are you saying? Are, are you saying? <laughs> Yeah, Lucas, are you saying that my 60-centimetre drop from a saddle to my bars and my 20-millimetre bars is not right? Is that what you're saying? Because that's where Wout does it. Well, I think we'd all agree Wout does things that shouldn't be possible. So uh... <laughs> that's, that's totally true. No. <laughs> yeah, so, sure. uh, but I like that idea. I'll, I'll have to add a, a, a Wout pro- protocol. Mm. Yeah. So, you get, that's right, and um, you just need to get people to sign a disclaimer, you know, a legal waiver, and yeah. like you, oh, mate, you'll make heaps of money doing that, Lucas. So, yeah. you, do you like the way I'm continually trying to drag Lucas down to my level, Ross? It's good, isn't it? <laughs> just he's keep, showing it. He's keep showing it. He's heels here, Scotty. He is, and he's too bloody professional. Can um, we just start, uh, Ross? Right. I, yeah, go. I think it's based in uh, my own acceptance of my. T- mediocrity so <laughs> I, I used to that's a difference that my... ross that's a difference between lucas and i he has an acceptance of his mediocrity and i on the other hand well I, i'm not I'm, I'm not mediocre so <laughs> <laughs> I just want to stay on the subject of pro riders and from a bike fitter and physio perspective. Are there any bike riders in the pro peloton that you look at on tally and just say, my God, that is a work of art. That is just absolutely Mm. beautiful. Yeah. Uh, Many of them, to be honest. And Van Art would be one. Yep. Um, I suppose the way that I, that might be helpful to answer that question is, uh, because it applies to the rest of us as well. I suppose when I'm looking at them, I observe that there are different characteristics that clearly suit that rider. So there is no one answer as far as a bike fit. And that fits because it's not just about the physical characteristics. So we're not just talking about their height or the relative torso length to leg length or those elements. It even goes to physiology. So we're all familiar watching that some riders climb at a naturally higher cadence than others. Mm. Some love nothing more than putting it in the gutter in the crosswinds Mm. and just maintaining insane power for half an hour and splitting the peloton. And so depending on the rider's innate physiological characteristics, so beyond just, again, their dimensions or limb lengths, actually just you know, how they produce power, how they recover from efforts uh, is going to have an influence on what feels right for them. Uh, And I think I've even discussed with Scott before, even for myself, 
I sort of seriously got into bike riding in my late teens and I was mountain biking with a couple of schoolmates. And the first mountain bike that I had, if I look back, was the wrong size. You know, I was a keen rider who went and bought a bike that my budget would allow, but I didn't have any professional input from the bike shop. But I spent my formative years on that bike in a way. And so the handling characteristics that I still like in a bike Mm. in a way are based on how I learned to ride on that bike. So even now on a road bike or a gravel bike, which is what I'm riding these days, I would still ride what would be considered a small frame. But Mm. to me, a frame that would be considered correct feels lazy. Mm. It's like it it feels... So I like a bike that's really responsive. Um, And so, again, I think I try to discuss that with clients that when you're choosing, again, the sizing of your bike, the feel does actually matter. So beyond just the data, beyond just the numbers... We also need to consider what do you want it for. And and in a similar way, even for the same rider, there's potentially, uh, you know, of course, there's the N plus one rule that we all know. But if you have to have a finite number of bikes, then I encourage people to to choose a bike that's going to suit what they want to do the most. And if that's going and racing a club crit and that's their focus, then sure, go and choose a bike that's a race geometry with a really short head tube and a long stem and a small frame and a short wheelbase and it's going to be stiff and it's going to be light and it's going to be responsive. But you're not going to want to ride it for more than an hour and a half versus someone whose goal is to go and do three peaks where you say go and probably lean towards the larger frame with a shorter stem and a zero offset post and you can still recreate the same biomechanics but you're going to have a bike that's going to feel more supple and repliable on country roads it's going to be a little more stable and high speed descents with a longer wheelbase so there becomes those sort of quality-based elements with selecting your bike and selecting your components, um, and and that can then have a ripple effect into your bike fit. So there can be a, a lot to cover. But. Yeah. Hey, Ross, I wanted to ask this before, and, and Lucas just mentioned Three Peaks or, or Peaks Challenge as it's known now. You did Peaks Challenge last year, sorry, this year, and then you're yep. intending to do it again next year, yep. the next edition. Um, and you told me at the time you had a pretty good day overall, you know, when mm. you rode it, which was like a, it's like a 10 hour day on the bike for you. I was, on there, like I was on the bike for 10 and a half hours. Yeah. Yeah. So you've had a good day. You said you've had a good day. You felt good at the end and you've not been on the 10 and a half hours. So that says something great about you and your preparation and your setup. But listening to all this bike fit talk, based on the experience you had at that Peaks Challenge, 250Ks, 4,000 vertical, it can be hot as hell or cold as buggery. And the fact that you want to do it again, what sort of thoughts have you got going on regarding, you know, the bike fitting potential for you? That's a good question. I think um, it's interesting. Sorry for the long setup. No, that's all right. Hearing Lucas talk before about if you're going to spend an extended time on the bike anyway, there's going to be discomfort. You know, it's not going to be sitting in an armchair watching a movie for 10 and a half hours. So I guess... What it does leave me is confidence in what I've got set up and albeit without a bike fit or, you know, any of those sort of things that haven't been through. So, yeah, I guess I can take some solace out of that, that everything's okay, mm. I guess. Yeah. Mm. Yep. And look, you know, I'm perfectly fine with having those conversations with people where if you're not having obvious issues uh, beyond, in a way, normal fatigue-related outcomes, there'll be a lot about your current fit that must be working for you. 
So I suppose I take the view too that as much as we've got access to all of those wonderful systems, and personally I use the retool system for the data analysis, um, it's not all that long ago that none of us had access to that, even at the professional level. <laughs> and we, you know, they could still all go and ride three-week grand tours and win the one-day classics in insane times. So I'm... Uh, I suppose, pragmatic enough to accept that not everybody needs a bike fit mm. and we can still get really positive outcomes for many people just by following those basic forms of feedback that the body gives us about comfort or not and whether certain muscle groups are becoming, you know, fatigued or cramping way earlier than others uh, versus just, yeah, has it been 10 and a half hours in the saddle and, of course, you're going to have a few nickels by the end of it. So. Mm. Um, you know, and I've had other people who have also attended purely saying, look, I reckon I'm right. I've been riding this yeah. bike for three years. I feel great. I've done the three peaks, um, but I'd just love to know. And in some cases, that's just confirmation for them that in those times when they're experiencing some cramping or some postural discomfort, they're not riding along going, oh, maybe it is the bike. Mm. They just have that confidence to know, no biomechanically it's been confirmed and maybe I am just cramping because it's been a massive day in the saddle or maybe I didn't get my nutrition spot on or whatever it may be but I think we've probably all experienced sometimes those nagging you know thoughts is it me is it the bike Mm. was it my preparation and so for some people it's just reassurance that the bike's good to go and any sort of discomfort or issues is about either their preparation or their physical capability. With the advent and the popularity of uh, indoor cycling, so a lot of, uh, particularly over the winter months, people on trainers and I'm sure that Zwift and all these online providers, they're enhancing the indoor training phenomenon. But do you see any differences when there's those winter months spent on the trainer and then the weather's fined up, we want to get outside, oh, Jeez, what's happened here? Like something, everything's gone to shit. Do you get any clients <laughs> like that who come and say, what's happened to me? Yeah. That's a really good question because indoor trainers definitely demand, uh, they have different demands than riding out on the, in the real world, as I call it. So one of the challenges of indoor training, and in a way I witness the same within a bike fit, is when a bike's restrained, and I know that now there are more and more fancy indoor training yeah. rigs, some of which have got adjustable height front ends and uh, sort of simulating the side-to-side movement of the bike. But for most people, they're in a fixed position with the bike held upright. Like I touched on earlier, postural output will be the first priority for the body. So very quickly, the body senses, oh, I'm not going to fall over because the bike's restrained. So most people actually are posturally more passive on an indoor trainer and that can actually be a problem. So most people will find Mm. that they have greater discomfort as far as pressure on the saddle. Mm. Often the hand and shoulder soreness will increase as well uh, because in essence they're sitting more heavily on the bike and also there's just way less uh, variety. So the undulations on a real ride, you know, in and out of the saddle on a climb, stopping for a traffic light, whatever it may be, just that little bit of change that we tend to have in the real world is not as likely to be the case on an indoor trainer. So that's one element is sometimes indoor training can actually cause more problems or sorry, cause problems that are not as likely to occur out on the road. 
The flip yeah. side of that that I've seen is um, I've probably seen a decreasing trend in people having issues that are to do essentially with overtraining or yeah. overexertion. So not just the indoor trainers, but they've accelerated that element. But even since the advent of power meters and people doing much more structured training, mm. But most of us have experienced going out with the group and there's been an agreement, yeah, we'll go and do 60 in the hills and have a coffee and head home. And you head out and it's a beautiful morning and everybody's feeling sprightly and someone says, oh, let's do the longer loop. And you find yourself... <laughs> Always that one bloke, isn't there? <laughs> yep, and you find yourself 30K from home and you've blown up and you drag yourself home. And in reality, that style of, you know, training or even just riding is exposing you to greater risk as far as injury or overuse, overtraining. So one of the benefits of indoor training is most people are, they're aware of what their capacities are. They've done their FTP test and they're training in a very structured, very controlled way, which is very deliberately within their capacity. Yeah. Um, so from that front, indoor trainers are... You know, I'm not witnessing as many people coming in with just really obvious overuse or overtraining injuries where they've just took themselves on a group ride where they've gone way over what they should have. Mm. Yeah. I recall um, a few weeks ago, I'd been doing a little bit of indoor stuff and had a fine day and I thought beauty will get outside. And I got on my bike riding outside and I felt like I needed a seatbelt on. I thought, geez, what's going on? Like I was shifting a little, <laughs> whoa, thought I was on a yep. ride at the show. Yeah. And again, a testament to the adaptability of the body. So that can work in our favour, but it can also work against us. And like you say, if you've spent a period of time on the indoor trainer, even a few weeks will be enough that then riding off the trainer will feel weird. Mm. Um, at the same time, probably within 20 minutes, 30 minutes, your body will just kick yep. back into that yeah, movement definitely. pattern and you remember how to do it. And it's a little bit the same, you know, over time I've experimented for curiosity as much as anything, but with things like, you know, non-round chain rings and even with that, I at one stage had my mountain bike with round chain rings and my road bike with uh, oval rings. And if I swapped from one to the other, the first probably five minutes, you're like, oh, oh that feels different. And you can <laughs> feel that your movement pattern and your muscle activation patterns are different. And then, again, testament to the body's adaptability, you're like, oh, no, that's cool. I've got this. And all of a sudden, you, it just feels smooth again. Um, and so, I'd also suggest, Lucas, that that could be one of the benefits of having a bike fit too, because it puts your body in a in a sort of a in the central bandwidth where it can be adaptable. But if a body is put on a bike fit that, or a setup that's really extreme, then your adaptability uh, is reduced because you've basically painted yourself into a corner, if you like. That's just a subtle link back into the benefits of bike fit. You know what I mean? Just that tolerance limits go up if you're sort of centered, you know, on the bike, if that makes sense. Yep. Yep. And it is exactly that. We're looking for that zone. So like I touched on earlier, it's not necessarily that you're setting people and saying, now you have to sit in exactly this way throughout your entire ride. Mm. We're looking at providing, like you said, that mid zone where people are able to move on the bike depending on their effort level and the gradient. And, um, yeah, but as you say, if you're in the wrong position, and I have seen a few people um, who are really obvious examples of that where they've been in either, you know, an obviously too high or too low with the seat, and yet they're doing really high-quality training load. They've done big events with no symptoms, but 
you're well aware that they could be more efficient. They could be getting even more out of their ride if they were in an optimal zone. Um, and again, there can be a short adjustment period necessary um, to get to that. But yeah, the aim is definitely to not have them unknowingly compromised with their, uh, their physical demands. Can I get back to talking about the pros? Because I'm intrigued as to the eye that you have when you're watching races. Um, yep. Scotty and I usually watch it um, just to pick out the soft pricks that, you know, maybe don't go hard or, you know, we form a real critical eye over it like that. All the, all you, the high performers that we align ourselves with. The winners, you know, they, they usually go straight onto our team, don't they, Scotty? The ones who show a bit of <laughs> character right. and balls, we recruit them straight away. But, yeah. Lucas, do you look at any pros and think, oh, I would love to work with him or her? And that's not necessarily that they need to be um, adjusted or anything like that, just to tap into what they've got going on. Um, you know, you might mm. look at Mark Hershey, who looks like he's been fucking poured onto a bike, absolutely beautiful, and just think, yep. I'd love to just spend an hour and a half, two hours with him just to see the machinations of how he goes about his work. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's always interesting to see how uh, one thing that I find fascinating about the professional ranks is that if you line them up, you know, you get the 200 odd riders out of the Tour de France, so you're going to have guys that range between five foot two to six foot four from 48 kilos through to 80 odd kilograms. And they're all remarkably similar as far as their capacity. Mm. Uh, So that I find really interesting. And it's, you know, across a lot of sports, that's the same scenario that you can take people with very different characteristics and get very similar outputs or outcomes. Um, I suppose as far as the one aspect which I have identified working with a lot of people is that the innate physical characteristics of the rider will have an impact on their, um, again, back to the word adaptability. So most physical characteristics are on a spectrum. And so whether that's flexibility, whether that's strength, whether that's, um, you know, physiological characteristics as well. But one that I consider a lot with people is essentially their mobility. So some people are quite stiff in their movement, so their joints are not particularly mobile. Generally, that goes together with relatively uh, stiff and short ligaments. And then at the opposite end of that spectrum are people who are essentially almost hypermobile. So Mm. they've got higher elastin contents in their tissues and their ligaments are essentially more stretchy or elastic. And those two types of riders at those extremes of that spectrum will adjust differently to changes in their setup, but they'll also tolerate different amounts. So a rider who's generally, in a way, physically more stiff in their tissue characteristics, you can move their seat or their cleats by two mil and they're like, what have you done to me? (laughs) And it's because their body is so, again, it's giving them such instant feedback that all of a sudden that the demands on their tissues, the amount of stretch has changed significantly for them. Whereas someone who's more hypermobile, and when you mention Mark Hershey, in a way, what I wonder with riders who often do look so smooth and supple and beautiful on a bike, is how much of that relates to their innate characteristics and probably what they do off the bike to have a body that's so adaptable because 
Uh, and again, it's it's a guess and a, an assumption, but I would imagine someone like him has fantastic flexibility, high joint mobility, really good core stability, and they're all the foundations you need to be able to get into any position on a bike mm. and just look like it was built around you. Mm. And I suppose it reminds me too of an anecdote actually from Cadell years ago, and I'm not saying this is verbatim, but he was asked about his time trialling position the year that he won the tour, and people were asking him, you know, how do you get comfortable in a position like that? And again, it's not verbatim, but his summary essentially was like, who said it's comfortable? It's fast. (laughs) So I think as well it can be very easy to, again, look at these professional athletes see a photograph in a magazine or a website and go, I want to look like that. But our background assumption is that they're comfortable like that. Mm. And that's Mm. not even necessarily the case either. Sometimes it's just necessary. Mm. So it very much comes back and I think it taps in again to what you guys, you know, look at in general with performance is you need something that matches your expectations, that matches your goals, because it doesn't matter if the data suggests you should be in a certain position if that's not what you like, um, mm. if that's not what works for your body type, even if the numbers suggest otherwise. And, and even for myself, I've evolved physically as well. I'm in my mid-40s now. I can't ride the same position I could when I was 20. Um, mm. There's various reasons for that, but, you know, one as well is that essentially I've got neck injury from a crash years ago, and if I'm in too low a position, I'll trigger a migraine. Mm. So mm. I tried for years with both setup adjustments on the bike and exercises and rehab off the bike, but you know I've had to accept that there's a threshold to how much how low I can run my front end, and if I push that, I'll be in bed with a migraine. So sometimes again, we just have to accept that there are limitations to what someone can accept, even if they want to look like they're idols on the television. And yeah, I think it helps being hasn't... Belgian as well. So yeah, always that's that's always that's right. There's all this, and then there's the Belgian factor. Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> and you know what is solution, Ross Lucas's solution to that uh, previous history of injury and where he used to be on a bike, and that is to ride his gravel bike, following after his two sons down mountain bike single track, hairy gnarly single track. So that's uh, Lucas's solution to you know not being able to get a low front end anymore. He just goes low anyway because he's going downhill. No, but the weight distribution is well off the back end of the bike, so I don't go over the front. Yeah, yeah. Whatever it takes. Gravel bikes go anywhere. If I'm watching the tour, for instance, I'll think that I love the way that rider pedals or, or whatever it might be sits on a bike. But just to hear you, from an educated point of view, be able to put not a critical eye over it, but a knowledgeable eye over it is um, really refreshing. So it sort of makes me think that there's, as you said, a lot of things at play there. And it's not just in the last two years that they've got on a bike. You know, this in some instances, they've been on a bike since they're bloody 10 years old or whatever. And, you know, yeah. They're professional. Um, yeah. I suppose part of what I the view I take too, I'm, I'm cautious of making assumptions. So even something as fundamental as assuming that symmetry is optimal. So as an example there, I had a lady years ago who was a very talented master's uh, racer at a state and national level, and she'd had a 
thigh bone fracture, so a femur fracture when she was a teenager from memory. And the way that that had healed and been managed, unfortunately, she ended up with a leg length difference. So the bone healed shorter. It disrupted her, her growth during her teenage years. And her one of her legs was short by over 20 mil, mm. so a reasonable amount, really. And she'd never had it addressed. She'd never really needed to. Again, it was during her formative years. She'd adapted to that. She'd been rehab and she'd spent 30 plus years of her life living with a leg length difference. She didn't have any symptoms. She didn't have any pain. But I met her at a training camp and we got chatting about my services. And she said, oh, you know, I'm just curious. I've, I've never had a professional bike fit. I've never had it assessed about whether my technique or my position on the bike is somehow problematic and whether I could get more out of it. So she came in and one of the common approaches in some bike fitting circles, and to me, it's always a case of last resort, partly through learning, working with people like this lady is using a mechanical correction. So in that case, it was looking at placing shims under her cleats to try and correct for that leg length difference. And again, the word even that people look at is correct. Now, in her case, we got her to six mil of shims and she wasn't really feeling much. Again, body type wise, she was actually quite flexible, which is probably how she'd managed it so well over many years. So up to six mil, she was like, oh, yeah, that feels a little different, but it's fine. And then once we got to eight mil and above, she started getting pain. And again, we could have approached it from that earlier aspect of an aspirational fit. You know, if she wanted to go through probably a two, three, maybe even more years of adding two millimetres every three months and doing a whole lot of millimeters. Maybe she would have got to a point where purely from a measurement perspective, she was symmetrical, but you couldn't argue with her performance. And, you know, we had that discussion, but she said, I've been riding at a high level for years. I don't have a sense of uneven fatigue in my body when I'm riding. I don't pick up injuries on one side of my body more than the other. You know, that was really interesting. But to her, that was the confirmation, don't fix what isn't broken. And yet, from an outside perspective, it could be quite easy to look at her and say, but she's asymmetrical. She has to be broken. Mm. That needs to be, quote, unquote, fixed. So personally, I'm always very cautious of the absolute last resort for me is to use a mechanical a mechanical input to try and alter something as far as, again, cleat wedges, cleat shims, um, rotating a seat or shifting a seat off the midline, you know, various techniques which certain bike fitters have, you know, suggested or used over time. To me, that's always an absolute last word of call. I look at utilising that rider's own adaptability. And even as far as, you know, I often describe to people, if we look at when we're walking, um, and you'll probably hate me for this because you'll never look at a footpath the same, but almost without fail, footpaths are cambered for draining. And yet we walk on them as if they're level ground. (laughs) We don't feel that they're cambered. And that's because our body is able to adjust the arch on one foot or slightly tilt the pelvis so that we are balanced and we're walking without sensing like we're on a sloping ground. But Mm. it's that same possibility on the bike. Um, And I even, you know, I don't know of any research. It's probably way too obscure. But one thing I noticed years ago on that same front, our roads are cambered for drainage too. And yet we ride along them on the left-hand side near the gutter. Essentially, the tilt of the road is taking us towards the gutter. So we're all leaning towards the middle of the road to actually maintain a straight line. Mm. And 
you know, I haven't explored that too much in my own thoughts, but I've just gone, oh, that would have to have some sort of postural impact. We would have to adjust for that. Maybe that would mean that the weight distribution on the bike shifts slightly depending on what that camber is. And then, you know, I wondered, maybe that's the Belgian difference, maybe, you know, riding on the right side of the road. I was going to say, Ross, that's why Van Art is so beautiful on a bike. He's been riding like Mad Max his whole life down the middle, yep. straight down the middle on the white lines. And everyone, all the trucks, all the traffic, just peel off. Oh, there's well, Wout. Hang on, he's coming. Just give him some clearance because he's riding down the middle. Well, they know they bounce off him anyway, Scotty, so they know to get away from him. That's right. Um, They've learned I, a lesson. I had one like last the buses question. in Turkey that go down the middle of the road <laughs> play, play chicken. I had one last question for you, Lucas, and this stems from, I remember hearing Baden-Cook talk years ago. He was in a Tour de France. Uh, I think he was riding for Saxo Bank at the time, and he was uh, fighting a battle with some uh, fairly intense saddle sores, and if I recall rightly, he had a bit of a lump in the undercarriage, um, which was starting to get bigger and bigger, and the team mechanic cut a big hole in his saddle, and at kilometre zero, he just firmly implant that said rock that he was in. <laughs> And just shove it in that hole, and there he'd sit for four or five or six hours or whatever it may be. And there was constant uh, monitoring of that and cutting of the saddle if it got any bigger. But what I'm sort of getting at is what's the most bizarre case you've had to engage with? Like, has there been something you just scratch your head? Or seen, or someone who's presented. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so certainly I have seen people with issues with saddle sores. Um, you know, it's a pretty common experience that people have uh, discomfort from their seats, whether that's numbness or chafing or saddle sores, there's various problems. I certainly have not gone to modifying a seat in that way. Again, to me, that goes back to the difference between someone who's being paid on a professional contract to go and do something that the rest of us should be told on medical advice, get off the bike, don't be an idiot. So I would never be making adjustments to try and keep somebody on the bike in that scenario. That's just uh, medically irresponsible. Um, But again, testament to the fact that these guys will do stuff that's not comfortable, Mm. but they're doing it because it's fast or it's necessary. Probably one that I enjoyed the challenge working with, which was definitely uh, different, was a gentleman who was an amputee. So he uh, competed in triathlon at quite a high level. Um, and he was looking at uh, getting a new prosthetic limb, which was specifically for cycling. So that was pretty cool. It had a cleat that needed to be attached in the right position on the end of the actual prosthetic limb. And then you're working as well with someone who doesn't, you know, that prosthetic limb doesn't have an ankle joint as Mm. such. So you're looking at how to position that rider in a way where the flow-on effect between, you know, the, uh, the normal side versus the amputated leg was something where he was stable and felt as though he could produce effective and and even power output. So that was definitely an interesting challenge. Took a little while, uh, first time I'd come across that. Mm. So, But again, as far as those other ones, I I remember in a way a similar story from Andy Pruitt who was pivotal in uh, specialised body geometry insoles and seats and other things. He heavily involved in their bike fitting some years ago. And I think that does date back to Saxo Bank as well. And there was, I think, again, another Belgian, must have been, because it was it's a pretty uh, hard-ass story. But this young guy <laughs> who was interviewed for the bike fit by Andy Pruitt and any issues and all the rest and sort of, oh, no, you know, just the usual. And Andy was asking him, oh, what do you mean by just the usual? Just he the said, usual. oh, 
you know, well, everybody gets a bit sore down there and, you know, I don't love the cobble races because it gets a bit worse. And Andy asked a little further, oh, what do you mean? He goes, oh, well, you know, I'm pissing blood for a couple of days after the cobble classics. <laughs> and Andy just rightly so as a medical, you know, input was like, what do you mean? And this guy just presumed that, no, you know, nobody talked about it, but he just presumed, well, or everybody else says that racing the cobbles hurts and he just figured that everybody else must get to the point where they've battered and bruised that area to the point where they're bleeding in their urine. So, like a badge of honour. <laughs> like a badge of honour. So anyway, he was able to uh, have some input. They did change his seat apparently and uh, were able to support his weight through his pelvis and sit bones rather than the soft tissue and he was apparently ridiculed by the other riders for riding a seat that looked like it was off a uh, you know $200 reed cycles but he apparently tore the legs off them because he was yeah. so comfortable. So yeah. Actually, it's funny you mention that because Scotty is keen to um, take me on a bit of a loop around the Yarra Valley and he said, you'll be pissing blood by the end of it. So, yeah, that's put a different... <laughs> Let's put a different context on that conversation, Scott. Well, yeah, I think you'd rather hear that than Ross is going to be a golden shower by the end of it. I was like, <laughs> we're not, like, you don't, you know, see it as a good thing. Do, do you see what happens, Lucas, after a bit of, co- you know, this, we start to just go down this road. Yeah. If we've been we start to get fatigued. Cold. The form starts to drop. The body <laughs> awareness starts yeah. to disappear. The brain starts cramping and strange yeah, things come out of the mouth. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think you got your nutrition wrong, Scotty. It's starting to go. <laughs> but it's a good, again, it's another, for me, what I hear in that story about that Belgian rider pissing blood, for example, it's another example of using experts because sometimes we don't know what we don't know. So he yeah. had no awareness that that wasn't normal. And for him, there's no perceivable problems. So I, yeah. I don't need to go and check up with anyone because there's no problems. But then you yeah. go and check up with an expert, they can see things you've done. And it's like, oh, shit. Why I'm saying that is to encourage if people think there's a chance that there could be something in it for them, then at the very least go see someone who's who's skilled and good, who's got a good reputation, well-educated, well-qualified, and you might come away with not much at all different. And you go, oh, that's a waste of time. It's not a waste of time. It's a good confirmation you can put out of your mind or there might be some brilliant discoveries. So well said. Yeah. And cramping, you know, getting onto that topic is often a good example on that because people often ask, you know, oh, I'm a bit prone to cramping. What do you think that is? Mm-hmm. And it can be multitude of things. It mm-hmm. can be poor hydration. It can be electrolyte imbalance from excessive sweating or the, you know, humidity. It can be poor physical conditioning. It can be incorrect bike setup. Uh, mm. It can be incorrect component sizes. It can be a multitude of factors. And sometimes it's you just cooked. You've reached well, the sometimes, threshold. And sometimes, and, Lucas, it's lack of courage. Well, yeah, yeah, that certainly can be the case. So, you know, uh, sometimes as well the conversation does get on to covering those other fundamentals, which uh, are sometimes just as much the factor. But I absolutely agree that exactly what you said, that sometimes you don't know what you don't know. And that's where uh, any sort of professional can give the insight into those key factors. And again, yes, there are some people who walk out with minimal to no changes to the bike, but they do say, it's great. I don't have to ride any longer wondering. I've had those questions answered or, and and sometimes it's feedback from other people. Sometimes they've had someone say, oh, I noticed that your knees go out, you know, you need to get that fixed. But 
even as an example, if they've got some sort of hip pathology that that's the only way that their hip's going to move and mm. the knee tracks slightly laterally, if they're symptom-free, that's not necessarily a problem if it fits their physical capacity. Mm. Um, for other people, it might be an indication of a, a big issue that could be fixed. So hopefully the outcome for everybody, regardless of how much adjustment or not is required to the bike, is that they're confident moving forward, that they're in the right position and something that's going to enable them to prevent injury and get the most out of their cycling. That's the aim. Lucas, thanks, mate. It's um, It's been a... As I said before, an intriguing discussion and one that hopefully uh, at some point we can get you back on to maybe um, mm, have another chat absolutely. because I'm sure that, um, and Scotty and I have found with some of our other episodes that we do have some questions and some follow-up from listeners. So although we do have some, uh, as we say, down the pub analysis of cycling, we do like to cover as many things as we can. And one of them is your field. Um, so we really appreciate you coming on, mate. But before we do finish up, would you like to give your business a plug? Because we've got listeners all over the country and all over the world. One of them is Russia, so we're not sure how you want to take that. We don't know how to take it either, so we're treading warily there. But what's your business, mate? That's probably your performance enhancement capacity. So they're uh, interested in anything on that front, I think. They're yet to get back to us too, which is even more worrying. Oh, maybe it's the producers of Icarus looking to do series two or something like <laughs> yeah, so. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so as Scott said in, uh, earlier, I'm uh, based in Melbourne, Bulleen, which is one of the northeastern suburbs. Um, you can get in touch and find out more at my website, so cyclingphysiotherapycentre.com.au. Um, you can contact me through that as well if there's uh, any inquiry. And, yeah, that's the best. And you, if you're interested in actually booking in, there's a uh, online booking link through that website. Brilliant. I'll uh, actually put your website in the show notes, mate. That's the first time I've ever had to say that on the show. I'm quite excited mm. by that. So we'll certainly nice. include that good. in the show notes. Professional. Mate. Yeah, oh, what we do. Thanks very much for having me. And certainly, yeah, if there's questions that come along, more than happy to be a, uh, a return guest if that's helpful to answer any specific questions. That'd be great. And, you know, yeah. you, as Scotty mentioned at the start, you've been a physio for 20 years, over 2,500 bike fits after doing bike fits for 14 years. But undoubtedly, you're now part of the half wheel and family. So that's probably one of your bigger highlights that you've had to encounter. Oh, yeah. So welcome aboard. Straight to and the top, <laughs> straight to the top of the resume. <laughs> and I'd probably be viewing that, Luke, as part of the family, not so much of uh, acceptance, more of a weight of expectation like the mafia. So just yeah, keep yeah. your wits about you. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, good thing I don't own any horses then. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Because <laughs> I've got a sharp knife. <laughs> Thanks good. for joining us, mate. That's a pleasure. On your Thanks, Lucas. Guys.